Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests mission to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast highlights some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs along the border. This season, we are focused on organizations that put the corporal works of mercy into practice. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! Our topic for this week is providing shelter. We will be interviewing Jennifer Harbury, who is a lawyer, author, and human rights activist. She's also the co-founder of Angry Tias and Abuelas, an organization that plays a large role in the humanitarian response to migrants on the border. Stay tuned for that interview. But first, let's talk a little bit about our own experiences of providing shelter to those in need, specifically by donating tents and tarps to people in the plaza in Reynosa. It really wasn't our first main focus. At first we were bringing clothing and then we were bringing hygiene things, but it became very clear as we were getting more and more involved in the camp that there was a huge need for tents. And a lot of people were coming. They would be dropped off by Mexican border security and dropped into the camp. And then there'd be 50, 100 people who had to sleep on the ground. And so it, it really became a situation where tents were very much needed, and, and we responded to that. And so many people, even maybe some people who listened to the podcast, were able to respond to that by providing shelter for, for people in real need. Yeah, and tents alone weren't the only item for helping to shelter people. The other thing that emerged very quickly was the need for tarps, and that was to put on the ground below your tent, to put over and cover your tent, uh, and there's a tremendous need for that. I mean, people were looking for two or three tarps per tent, uh, and that was another thing that we were able to kind of provide uh, to help pe- help people out because especially it was just so tough when it would rain in that camp. It was like the water would just get in anywhere. I think about my own experiences of, you know, you go camping and it rains a little bit and, uh, you know, maybe some of that gets into your tent, but it's like, that's ah, one night. You, you dry off and you're fine the next morning. But gosh, if you're having to live in this, any water that's getting in is just creating more problems. And so great need for both the tents themselves that are, if they're in good shape, and for tarps to help cover them as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I can remember camping as a Boy Scout and, and not wanting to touch any side of the tent, because if you touch a side of the tent, then the water will come That's in, right. <laughs> no matter what. So then, you know, you're very careful. But imagine having to do that and have all of your things with you you know, all of your possessions, and not just that, but be four people in a tent, you know, be five people in a tent. So it's a very difficult situation to be in. There's, there's no way to downplay that at all. And, and it's, it's a situation of high need. So, so definitely we've needed to bring new tents. And as we've gone on, we've had the experience of, of needing to replace tents because these tents break apart. They, they're not meant for these kind of conditions over long periods of time. Yeah, that's right. You know, it might be the kind of tent you'd bring out for a weekend trip and you do that, you know, a couple times a year and that's about it. I mean, now imagine having to live in it for, 
you know, six, eight, 10, 12 months. I mean, it, it's just not going to hold up in, in tough conditions. You know, we talk about the rain. Wind is another thing that, you know, blowing extreme wind. We get a lot of high winds down here in the Rio Grande Valley. And so high winds can be another thing that cause a lot of damage to these, you know, plastic, basically, tents uh, as they're blowing in the wind in extreme situations that can cause them to tear. But that the, the weather is not the only precarious situation in terms of housing. And we've seen other situations as well that have caused problems for people. Yeah, not too long ago, you know, uh, the police arrived in the plaza and all of the people that were on the sidewalk surrounding the plaza. So the sidewalk's probably about 10 feet. And then in some parts, it's, it's much deeper. And there were hundreds, 100 tents more yeah. uh, that were along the sidewalk that the police forcibly displaced. So people had to move off of the sidewalk and uh, either into the interior of the camp, which has no space at all, or they were completely displaced and had to find shelter elsewhere, uh, either in shelters or, or in a hotel or on the street. So we're, you know, and we're not just talking about very, you know, able-bodied, you know, campers. We're talking about whole families with children. So hundreds of people really displaced in one night and many things thrown away and things like that. So, so we, you know, we had the experience of watching it through WhatsApp happening, you know, getting messages from our friends who are in the camp as, as this real devastation is happening, as their homes are being uprooted and taken away from them. You can imagine how alarming this situation is. I mean, imagine someone coming to your house at 8 p.m. at night after the sun is set and saying, you have one hour to remove yourself and your things from this place of residence and relocate. I mean, it's a. I mean, already to be staying in the plaza in Reynosa is a precarious enough situation. But then, the police came in the evening at dark and basically notified all the families like, "We are removing everyone from the the sidewalk." And you know, the migrants responded as best they could. They did not act out with violence. They did not, uh, you know, create large protests. They tried to uh, comply with the situation as responsibly as they could, organize themselves, and try to relocate. And we know of at least one great experience, a great friend of ours who was, uh, you know, faced with this circumstance. Yeah, Miguel Angel and his his wife were were running a kitchen in the camp. So this was Kitchen Five, is what I what I called it. I, I couldn't pronounce the name of the, the new name, but <laughs> Kitchen Five and. Uh, they were running their own kitchen and, and giving of themselves and trying to feed the people around them. And, and we were bringing them some supplies. And Miguel Angel is the sweetest guy, so kind and very funny and, and could, you know, really uh, show that he cared for, for people, not just through, by feeding them, but by sitting, that, sitting with them and really focusing on them. And, and they were totally uprooted. Their kitchen was taken away. Their tent was taken away. They're with their two teenage daughters. And they've got to figure out what to do in the middle of the night, you know, f- as far as finding new shelters. So they ended up relocating in the middle of the camp in this very cramped section. The other, the other migrants who were with them moved to the side a little bit to create this space. And it showed, you know, I was super surprised to see that they even found a space. But it shows that, like, the migrants who are in the camp are going to work together. So even when something devastating happens, even when, when the worst you could imagine is going to happen, someone's going to step up and, and make some space for you. Someone's going to step up and, and, and really help you out. And that's what we've been inspired by over and over again. And this situation was, was no different. 
Yeah, and the bright side of it all was that, you know, freeing up the sidewalk has opened up more space, and that's a lot of the space that kids used to play. And there was concern from local authorities, including the police, that kids were getting out in the street too much where cars are passing by, which is what they, you know, used as the impetus for making this move. And it's true. We see, you know, kids now playing soccer in kind of the bigger parts of the sidewalk, you know, kind of kicking a ball around or things like that. So it has opened up a lot of space, but not without some real human costs as people had to relocate and pack into an even already cramped space, trying to find a place to put a new tent down, or more often just combining even more people where you've got tents that have five, six, seven people living in a tent that's probably a three or four person tent. And that's just a bit of the reality. But as far as our role in terms of providing the shelter and distributing the tents and the tarps, like all our other donations, we've run them through the four main cocinas that we've been getting to know the people for. And we bring the donations there. And we ask them to prioritize. You know, what they get a lot of requests. They can make a list if that's the most appropriate or prioritize based on new arrivals or whatever. And so that's our general method for all our donations. But, you know, sometimes there's a personal touch that gets involved. Yeah, you just can't say no sometimes because we, we get to build these relationships and we know that the the kitchens aren't able to focus on everyone. And and on occasion, someone will come up to us and say, you know, sorry, fathers, I don't want to interrupt you, but there's I have a real problem with my tent. There's there's something wrong with it, like the zipper's not working or there's a hole in it or something. And, and at first, I think we were kind of like, well, you know, the kitchens are the ones that distribute the things. The kitchens are the ones that you need to go to for help. But after a little time and getting to know people, we've started to go into their tents or see where they're living. And you can see uh, sometimes that they're in desperate need today. You know, they need some help right now. And so so we've been able to distribute some tents that way. And, and in particular, we have this story of, of uh, Sherlyn and her mother who, uh, who were in need of a tent. Yeah, Sherlyn is just one of our favorites, uh, full disclosure here. I think we kind of compete for her attention a little bit because we both want to be her favorite. Uh, but it she, is, I am her favorite. Uh, pretty sure it, it definitely <laughs> we, started with me, and you kind of won her over a little bit by letting her lock and unlock the car door. Anyway, let's back this up a little bit. <laughs> I taught her the Macarena, I will tell you that. <laughs> no, you had all the moves of the Macarena wrong, and I had to help correct them. Anyway. That's how I remember this. But anyway. Anyway, anyway. Sherlyn, getting back to Sherlyn, she's a seven-year-old girl who's in the plaza with her mom, Bessie, and she just helps us out all the time. She runs to greet us often when we arrive. She guides us through the plaza sometimes when we need to get from one kitchen to the next. She always wants to grab a bag to help carry it or grab some of the donations and help out. She even participates in our mass. She's a very active participant. She gives us a big hug during the sign of peace. You can see her extend her arms and close her eyes to pray the Our Father as we're praying the Our Father. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. She's usually one of the first in line when we give out communion or blessings. So she comes and folds her arms and receives a blessing during communion every time. Just a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful person and definitely a favorite of ours. One day we're walking through the plaza and she's following with us and, and she said, you know, you know, my mom and I were wondering if we could get one of the tents that you bring. And so we decided, well, let's go over and show us where you live. So she took us over to her tent where uh, her and her mom live and we saw the living situation. You could just tell right away that it was a tent that had uh, really been, it was in a state of disrepair and it was shocking that they were actually living in that tent. 
And and you know, how do you respond in that moment? Are you like, well, you got to go through the kitchen. You got to, <laughs> you know, follow this procedure or yeah. do you say, you know, we're going to be back on Thursday and we'll bring you a tent, you know, and and there's something to be said about that as pulled as as we might feel sometimes about like, well, this is the fair way and this is the only way. You also have to take into account the reality right in front of you, you know, and the relationships that you've built. You don't want to play favorites. And at the same time, you know, it's it's hard to turn away from your friends. You know, it's hard to it's hard to say no to somebody that you really, really care about right in front of you. So so definitely Sherlyn uh, would get, you know, if we could build her a palace, we would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Some, you know, sometimes you see a need and you just have to respond to it as quickly as possible and as immediately as possible. When it comes to responding to needs, Angry Tias and Abuelas is an organization that has been doing that since 2018 and has been extremely active uh, down here as long as we've been down here. We've been very impressed with their response and the things that they're coordinating. So we are very pleased this week to have with us one of the co-founders of Angry Tias and Abuelas, Jennifer Harbury. So stay tuned for that interview coming up next. Just a quick note before this interview with Jennifer Harbury, this interview does feature some graphic language, including language about sexual assault and violence. And so just to let listeners know that that's what to expect in this interview. And and if there's anybody with you that, that shouldn't be listening to this, uh, please uh, find another spot to listen. Okay, we are pleased today on the Jesuit Border Podcast to welcome in Jennifer Harbury, a lawyer, author, and human rights activist who in 2018 was one of the original founding members of Angry Tias and Abuelas in response to U.S. border policy. Uh, And we're just really excited to have you with us today, Jennifer. Well, thank you. And thank you for all the great work all of you folks and all of the other members of the Catholic Church are, are doing for refugees down here at the border. Yeah, we greatly appreciate uh, having gotten to know you and see the work of Angry Tias and Abuelas. And maybe that could be just a, a starter question. Maybe if you could just talk a little bit about that organization and how it first got started and what its mission is. Well, back in 2018, um, there were two uh, new policies that came out of the administration back then to stop refugees from trying to ask for asylum in this country. You can't ask for asylum from outside the country. You have to get in first. So our laws actually say you cross the bridge, you present yourself to one of the officers at the port of entry and say that you're in danger and that you need to ask for asylum. And then you shall be processed. You can't be sent back. That's against not only international law, but domestic law. But as President Trump started closing all the doors, it got to be where everybody was trapped in northern Mexico, which, especially in Reynosa, is one of the most dangerous areas in the world. The U.S. State Department has that logged as uh, Category 4 in terms of danger, which makes it the same as Iraq and Afghanistan. So one of the two things we saw happen is they started taking people's children away if they crossed the river. 
but they couldn't get across the bridge. And what they were doing at that point in time, they told everybody that they had to sit and wait their turns to apply for asylum, but not in the 60-seat waiting room, not in the air-conditioned places, not where there was water. They had to sit outside on the hot cement in 104-degree weather for as long as it took. They couldn't go back into Reynosa without risking kidnapping. They had their babies with them. They, they were pregnant women there. There were all kinds of people who were highly vulnerable. And most of them waited about two weeks sleeping on the hot cement. And the, the um, folks inside the office did not provide water. They would not let them use the bathrooms. They couldn't even wash their hands. So in something that I consider, you know, one of those really wonderful moments, Everybody from the U.S. side and also the Mexican side, we came roaring to each and every bridge with gallons of water and fruit juice and ice and pampers and, you know, crackers and jars of peanut butter and, and food of other kinds, fruit, anything we could get our whole hands on to bring to them. Um, and we kept meeting each other on the bridge, going back and forth, Mexicans with U.S. people. And a number of the U.S. people, I started to get to know pretty well and eventually invited them all over to my house to at least have a chat about responding to the situation most in the most organized way we could. And we decided at my house, drinking coffee, to form a loose coalition and just inform each other back and forth over a chat group um, about what was going on where so we could all rush to a certain place if that needed more help than others. Um, one of our first acts was to release the tape recording of the crying babies, and that got rid of the taking the children away. But people to this day are trapped in northern Mexico, um, and they're suffering kidnapping, rape, murder, and everything else you can think of at the hands of the gangs, and have been for years because we haven't let them come across the bridge as the law requires us to do. So, you know, just thinking about so many of the angry Tias that we know, so many of the the people in the group, they're very, very passionate about this work and what they're doing. And, and so often angry Tias and Abuelas is, is right there, you know, helping to bring supplies, helping to get things in there that need to be there and, and really accompanying people in this, in this desperate situation. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, for yourself, uh, where does this, where does this passion come from? You know, where does, where does this, this real sense of needing to be there, needing to provide some justice in a very unjust situation, what, where are you getting that? For one thing, all of us have seen it close up now. And once you've seen it, you don't unsee it. You know, I remember a little boy as I passed out a big jug of water to the father of the family. He was maybe two and barefoot on the hot cement. And I passed the bottle to the dad and he had reached up for it and realized I was going to give it to the dad so they would share. And he just burst into tears. He was tired. He was hungry. He was hot. He was desperate and he just needed a drink. So I went back and got some more, of course. But, you know, when you have a woman crying on your shoulder who's been raped twice, gang raped twice because she wasn't allowed across the bridge and so she's been kidnapped twice, um, a child who's watched that happen to his mother from a foot away, um, people who have watched their parents or their children be killed or drowned in Panama as they try to get north, you cannot unsee it. It's horrifying. And the fact that we're contributing to it and promoting it and prolonging it, we can't live with that. 
So knowing the refugees, that's fueling us. Knowing their stories firsthand, that's fueling us. But more than anything else, it's their courage and their ability to stand up and go, well, that was horrible, but I got to get my kid to a safe place so I can take it a little longer. I'll do it. I'll get there. You know, my kid has to survive. And, you know, that's just extraordinary. And the fact that they can still laugh and still love their children and still sit with us and still be such delightful human beings is quite amazing to us, too. So we're powered by what we see them doing. When you paint the picture like that, Jennifer, it, it makes sense why the organization took the name Angry Tias and Abuelas, because it is a, a situation that is quite infuriating when you see the human suffering we're that we're causing. Outraged. We're outraged. You took a child away from his mother? Yeah, it's important for us to to draw attention to it, to a situation like this that that involves so much human suffering that's the result of our policies uh, in our country and, and to be part of the response of it. You know, for this season uh, of the Jesuit Border Podcast, we're talking about the corporal works of mercy. And you you already started with a couple of them in terms of giving drink to the thirsty, giving food to the hungry. This episode, part of what we're focusing on is giving shelter to those who are in need. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your involvement and Angry Tia and Abuela's involvement in providing shelter, including the newest developments in Reynosa. Sure. Um, what we're seeing, of course, is that the under Title 42, which we're very glad is going to end soon, but we're very worried about what's going to come next. I mean, that's kind of been our experience for the last several years. Women are being raped right now at two in the afternoon in the encampment, in their tents. Their children are being taken away to work, sometimes coming back bloody, sometimes not coming back at all. People are being kidnapped. Some come back, some are sold. Um, it's a disaster. So they have to get into the shelters which have walls around them and which are church sanctuaries. There has always been two of those. One is Senda de Vida, run by a pastor, Evangelical Pastor Hector. The other is run by local Catholic nuns called Casa de Migrantes. I take that back. Many of them are, in fact, from the old round of nuns that worked in Chiapas uh, during the Dirty Wars when the Guatemalans were rushing across. Um, unfortunately, those filled to overflowing um, during the last two years. So uh, Hector at Senda de Vida had a large empty area behind um, his walled compound that belonged to him. So he hugely expanded it. And his number of residents went from a few hundred people to close to 1,500. But there are now, because the United States keeps throwing people back and they can't get back across, there's a giant bottleneck People can't stay in Central America. The gangs are coming after their children. So it's growing bigger and bigger, and that's attracting more and more gang violence. So there's 3,000 there. And so Pastor Hector, not very happily, but, but very determinedly, started building another shelter at a nearby baseball field that will hold all 3,000 people. And he's built a huge wall around it. Um, it's got running water, bathrooms, no more portable toilets. We're hoping to get solar power in there. Um, uh, there's showers, there's there's lab, uh, laundry facilities that'll go up. There's a huge center that'll be stoves. We're getting the school taken care of. All of that's very close to finishing. So I think the great miracle of the shelter, and I really need to share this with everyone, Hector, Pastor Hector invited all of the people living in the first send of shelter to go with him and build it. 
they needed manpower to just build this gigantic wall. And more than 100 of them volunteered. And I've talked with all of them. They've gone out during the freezes. They've laid it brick by brick themselves. And when you talk to them, they all say the same thing. I was in the plaza. I was there a couple of months before Senda took me in. And it saved my life. And I remember how horrible it was. And we migrants are going to take care of each other. We're doing it for our brothers and sisters. We want to. And they have built a beautiful shelter. The collaborative effort between organizations uh, and also between the, with the migrants themselves who, who bring a lot of gifts and skills and talents uh, with them. And it, it really is. It's inspirational. And we, you know, we say that all the time. And one of the things that inspires us in is their faith. I mean, we go in there as, as a para-Catholic priest and I think often remark on how much uh, how little faith we have when you see it in light of uh, the people in the plaza and the great tremendous amount of faith and, and the way faith is a source of strength and uh, hope for them in the midst of a very challenging situation. I wonder if you could comment in, from your perspective on maybe just the role, the role of faith uh, as you see it playing out in, in the lives of the migrants that you've encountered. There's two things the migrants have that keeps them going. One is their faith. The second is their children. They have nothing else. Their houses are gone. Everything they ever owned is gone. Their livelihood is gone. Any basic respect from strangers, for the most part, it's gone. Um, their right to save the lives of their children, they might as well get spit upon by U.S. officials when they go to the bridge. It's just they've committed a crime and even asking for asylum, even though the law gives them that right. It's as if they had done something dirty, but they know who they are. They know who they are. And they say the same thing over and over again. We have to keep going for our children. We're going to we're going to make it all right for them. Dios quiere. Dios quiere it finishes every sentence. I think you know so much of of what we do is uh, offering offering mass and and going and bringing donations and and just sort of being there and being a face a consistent face of of charity in the best way that we can and and it has been striking to us just the network that we've been able to build uh, with migrants and so much of our own work is about the relationships that we've had. Um, and you know, I, I know a little bit of your own story, just about your experience in in Guatemala and and the disappearance of your husband, and uh, and also your own activism for getting the the information out there, getting the correct information about what was happening and how the U.S. government was supplying that. Uh, and I, I'm wondering how those how did those relationships begin? Because so much of this work and so much of your own activism is centered on relationships. So so how did you end up in Guatemala in the first place? What were those relationships like that brought you there? Well, you know, I grew up, but I'm uh, from a very, very mixed family, to say the very least, Um in terms of backgrounds, religions, culture, everything else, um, my grandfather's family were Dutch Jews and they went through the Holocaust. Um, so I certainly grew up hearing about that. I was born in 1951, just not, not very long after Anne Frank died. Um, so I grew up very much with that, the morale of you don't ever turn your back when you see something like that happen. You don't ever say 
it's too dangerous. It's not my problem. I shouldn't stick my nose in it. It's someone else's problem. You just don't get to say that. And never again means never for anyone again, right? Not, not just us. So um, that was the first step is like watching people like my grandfather, you know, reading through all the mail and postings of, you know, names that had been recovered, et cetera, et cetera, trying to figure out who had gone where or who hadn't ever gone anywhere after 1944. Um, so it's that initial springboard. Um, but the way I ended up going to Guatemala is working down here on the border with farm workers. And uh, several of my friends were doing nonstop immigration work. And in the early 80s, all these Guatemalan indigenous people showed up with horrible injuries and completely traumatized children that would drop pictures of helicopters shooting at people and the bodies on the ground bleeding and they would run and hide under under a sofa if if an immigration helicopter went by just completely traumatized and they were all coming out of the genocidal campaign in Guatemala and the dirty wars um, in Central America um, it was back when the governments were using their militaries to carry out genocide to maintain a political and economic status quo that was convenient to them. And the United States was backing that 100%. In fact, later when the Truth Commission came out for Guatemala, the UN-backed Truth Commission said, determined that the Guatemalan military had carried out genocide legally, that it had carried out acts of torture and terror on a daily basis, and that the United States had knowingly and intentionally collaborated with that, with that even once it became clear exactly how bad the situation was. So how does all of this relate back to refugees? Well, all of those people, including Alpires, after the war ended, they were already heavily involved in the drug war, and they became leaders of, of the narco units, of the cartels that are killing everybody now. And a lot of the torture and terror methods are exactly the same. The Zeta cartel was organized by Guatemalan military leaders. Alpires is still on the DEA corrupt officer list. Why hasn't anyone gone after him to arrest him? Because he's a C former CIA partner. The CIA doesn't allow us to go after their former partners. So they are still terrorizing the entire country and driving people north to our borders. But we're the ones that created the Frankensteins. And I think part of what's helpful, a helpful reminder here, as, as people come to our southern border, a lot of them are coming from, especially the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. And uh, a lot of times I think my perspective is that a lot of Americans up north are just thinking about the impact that they're having on this country coming here and and the quantity of them and what are they going to do in terms of taking jobs or um, you know contributing to the society or bringing problems with them and I think sometimes we uh, Americans can lose focus on what they're fleeing on what the situations are like in those home countries. And I mean, certainly you can talk about mass genocide happening in the 1980s, but even today, even today, right? You know, you could comment it's still maybe going a little on, bit. And it's yeah. the same perpetrators. That's the, the great irony. It's like people are every bit as endangered right now and running for all the same reasons. And the brutality is just as bad. The leaders of the cartels are the same people that did the genocide. 
and they've taught everybody else to to carry on the role as well. These are not kids on the streets that started some street gangs. These are the highest up leaders of brutal, dirty wars possible, right? So yeah, that's what they're running from. And that's what I totally understand. I saw it happen. Um, and they're running up here and we're turning them back. Now, how can we do that? I keep hearing, yes, we're worried about um, them taking our jobs or them weighing us down and stuff. But first of all, we got to remember that our fruits and vegetables are pretty low cost because they work for pretty much nothing. Um, they can't form unions. They can't demand minimum wage without getting shot, you know, by the local security forces and stuff. Um, so we benefited all kinds of ways economically, also by our corporations taking all of the natural resources and minerals. Um, if we go back to the banana wars, you know, all of that. But um, more importantly, once they get up here, they're taking jobs that most Americans refuse to take, picking cotton stoop labor, like picking onions, um, labor that maybe it's not our first choice, like taking care of elderly folks, changing diapers on adults. I mean, they're right there and they're doing a great job. Um, maybe we should be happy to see them. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's one central question for us uh, very often is when we see people in the plaza and then they do cross, we wonder, you know, what, what is waiting for them here? You know, what is what is really with people who have so much talent, people who have educations, people who are very clearly leaders within their community are then sent to these these jobs that are it's just difficult to wrap your mind around. But because of how the system is set up, it's it's what's available to them in this country. And uh, I, go ahead. I think if we thought more about welcome our neighbors their family and friends, right, that we might find they have an enormous amount to give us. In your own life, you know, we found we found so many stories of inspiring people within within the camp. And and even I mean, just talking to you, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm over here like, oh, my gosh, I need to like start my Jennifer Harbury, <laughs> my Jennifer Harbury scrapbook of all the, <laughs> all the things I admire about you. But, no, um, but I, uh, you know, one thing I'm wondering is, is, is there someone from your own, from your own history or from your own uh, life that has particularly inspired you, you know, in those difficult moments when you're, when you might be feeling just like overwhelmed or anything, who is it that you think about who, who really dedicated themselves to work like this, that a story that you might want to uphold? Just the women in the group for the disappeared. One of my first tasks was, you know, to accompany them, you know, because it was less likely they'd be shot if a foreigner was an American citizen was watching because the Guatemalan military needed money from D.C. It was a temporary protection, but we had it back then. So they did an all night vigil, you know, in the midst of this horrible repression and, you know, the attacks on their members and the two murders and the child. I mean, all of that. They did an all night vigil on the front steps of the National Palace, which I thought was terrifying. I mean, cars with black glass windows and, and half lit, you know, headlights were going around and around and the guns were everywhere. And but I stayed with them. And uh, one of the women was looking for her son who'd been a doctor. And she is a very sassy old lady. And everyone was kind of crying and upset and the cars were scaring everybody and people were shouting threats and stuff, but they stayed right there. And Donya Lili, 
um, started telling stories. She told all of her son's medical school jokes, which were, of course, completely obscene. Right? <laughs> they were doctor jokes. And we'd go, oh, Donya Lily, you can't be telling that joke. And she's like, well, let me tell you this one. And we were all just rolling off the stone steps laughing because they were hysterically funny, but they were straight out of the med school stuff, right? Um, but they were hysterically funny. And we all just ended up in this really cozy circle of, of sweet, wonderful, powerful women that were not going to accept well, you know, he was into something, so it was perfectly okay for us to do what we did. It's like, no, you know, human society is not going to sink that low. And in a tiny fraction of that spirit, that's how the Angry Tias was formed. It's like, no, we're not going to be doing this. We're not taking babies away from their moms. That's right. Mind. Yeah, never, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people could change the world because it's the only thing that ever has. Uh, just want to say a, a big thank you to you, Jennifer, uh, for joining us for this interview, but even more, more than that, for your tireless commitment uh, to people in need, uh, decades and decades of commitment, and it really is inspiring. And the work that Angry Tia's and Abuelas is doing is very powerful. We encourage people to uh, look up your organization to find ways that they too can contribute, to come down here and see the reality uh, and you know, just want just want to say thanks again, and know that you very much inspire us in our work in ministry here on the border, and we look forward to just continuing our collaborations going forward. Well, thank you for your ministry. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Jennifer Harbury for joining us. Not only is this the end of the episode, it's also the end of season two. Are there are there normal normal uh, corporal works of mercy? There, there are seven, Louis. The, there are seven like, corporate works know, of mercy. Like walk your neighbor's dog or nothing more? No. Have you read Matthew 25? <laughs> well, you, you always <laughs> tell me what it is. I don't know. <laughs> We like our lists in the Catholic Church, but they're finite, and this one has ended at seven, and so accordingly, we've had seven episodes to this season. I would like to propose an addendum. (laughs) Let's let's take it to the Vatican. The Synod is going on. Let's take it to the Vatican. It's going to go to the highest reaches of the Vatican, the eighth corporal work of mercy, walking your dog. Walking your neighbor's dog. Walking your neighbor. Well, of course, (laughs) that's that's the act of mercy That's it. That's it. So you're actually not helping the dog. You're helping your neighbor. That's right. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you next season on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Nos vemos!